You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and as you may be well aware of, this is a indie podcast, indie talk week. I said indie podcast, but I meant indie talk. And of course, you know what that means. That means I am joined here by my good buddy, Nicholas Bug. Nick, say hello. <laughs> <laughs> what's up folks just over here sipping on a lovely cup of tea uh you know i've been hanging out with sick children for the past week and you know well you need to decided. clarify that right away ah! <laughs> <laughs> yes i've been hanging out with my children my oh! project right who happened to be sick uh, and, you know, as all uh, kids do, they pass on the lovely gift of their illness to me. Uh, so I'm making sure that I take care of uh, myself with some uh, with a lovely cup of tea. So I, uh, I greet you again. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hanging out with sick kids in Bangkok. <laughs> Don't go there, man. Don't go there. It's just... <laughs> Uh, you're sipping tea, uh, and I am sipping on uh, red wine. Oh, nice. And nice. Um, there is a brand that is hard to find, I think, in just the general liquor store, uh, but it's wonderful. They make a wonderful cab. Get the 14 if you can, if you can find it. You'll know the difference because the 14 will have the all-white label, and anything above 14 will have a red and white label. Um, but it's called Smith and Hook. Smith and Hook. If you like red wine, I don't know when this became a wine review show, but if you like red wine, <laughs> get this red wine. It's a it's a game changing red wine, and boy does it have uh, it has legs. Just tell you, you swirl it around, you know, in the glass, and it comes down. That's called legs. Nice, well, I appreciate it. All yeah, kinds of legs. Yeah. And by the way, by the way. I have this habit that I've probably been been deeply uh, I'm deep in this habit to where I, I can, probably can't climb back out easily uh, without just replacing this thing altogether. So I do this podcast at uh, in my studio office, and I usually have giant sticky pads. All, like all around me, like because I'm always writing down, jotting some note, really quick access. I'm still a guy who wants to just pick up a pen and write down a note really quick and stick it somewhere or just leave it on the pad, right? But okay. much like a flame, a flame can warm you, but it can also provide light. A sticky pad can provide a surface for writing, but it's also a monster-ass coaster. It's a great coaster. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. It is. You wow. Don't need, you don't need coasters if, if you have the sticky pad uh, on your desk. Wow. The build up to that story and then like the end didn't match. I was, was like, it, this dude's was taking it, was me it, somewhere. Was it, was it Manchester at the sea? What they call it anti. There you go. I was like, okay, he's taking me somewhere with the, with the sticky pad and the notes and the flame. And then this dude said, "Coaster, mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. man." It's a co- uh, just telling you. It's a very functional thing. If you don't listen, you sound like a guy who doesn't respect uh, surfaces. Coasters. No surfaces. Coasters <laughs> protect surfaces. And you are clearly an individual that doesn't respect surfaces. You're no, gonna, no. You're going to lay that true. shit right on the flat surface. That's not true. I got a I got a Polaroid picture of Christopher Barkley right here. And, you know, it's awesome because it doubles as a photo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so your so your point is that anything flat can double as a coaster, but I say I say no because you wouldn't want like a ring on your book, or a ring on your iPad screen, or on a picture, Polaroid picture of Chris Barkley. Right? Oh, my bad, dude. I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll move. I'll move my tea off of your face. Yeah, my bad. Just letting my you bad. know if you if yeah. you flip a post-it pad over, there's a there's a waxy. Bat. <laughs> it's a weird description. Uh, and you can put your drink on this waxy back. And it's the same thing when I flip your picture over on me. Yeah. <laughs> put it but, on your waxy back. <laughs> but, you, but those liquids can permeate the waxy back of a photo. Therefore, degrading the quality of your Polaroid of me. With a bunch yeah. of sick kids in Bangkok. Yeah, right, right. Um, All right, onward, onward, on, onward, onward, and upward. Enough of this shenanigans yeah. that you yes. get me no, into. No, we're gonna call that shenanigree. Shenanigree. Okay, that, that's what it is. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wanted to talk to you know this week though because it, um, there's been this thing that's going on, um, for God, what would you say, Nick? Maybe the last. Five years. It's a slow-moving glacier in film, and I want to talk about it. And I don't think we've ever really addressed it head-on. We've talked about it a little bit with like the Fast and the Furious and some of these other um, franchises, maybe. Um, but that's not even a good example of it, really, of what we're going to talk about. But it has been a slow-moving glacier away from the world we live in, the world we support, which is independent film and independent filmmakers. And there is a this serious discussion with the consolidation that's happening in the broader uh, film community and film market, right? And this is all driven by M&A activity. So mergers and acquisition and consolidation of IP, intellectual property. And so now there's this conversation that's happening that goes like this. Is there any reason to... Like, does it make sense to produce original content? Theatrically, right? Theatrically, is that the, Theatrically right, yeah. exactly. Like, is there any reason to do it? Um, because if you're Disney, you now own the Marvel comic universe. You own every Disney movie that's ever come out. And you can see how they're flipping it, right? They've got a new Little Mermaid coming out um, 
for the theaters. They've got a live one that's that's about to premiere. Yeah, they got Mulan 2. Mulan 2, Frozen 2. Like, they're just going to keep rolling. And, and they can always remake these um, movies. Like, they really don't have to write another original movie again. Uh, I, I wouldn't think. You know, if, if Pixar and Disney were still separate, then you would see original movies. Um, maybe the same formu- formula, right? Because that formula is so effective. Uh, I'm telling you right now, Toy Story 3, weeping. That fire scene, that incinerator scene, holy shit. Anyway. Have uh, you seen four? No, I haven't seen four. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Okay. So, um, you know, you would get that. But now I think you look at Sony, you look at Warner Brothers, Disney, uh, Paramount, Universal. And that's really all there is uh, studio-wise from a big studio perspective. And they own so much IP that they can just always reboot and reboot and reboot. And I think me and you are old enough now to say, damn, it, it hasn't been that long since the first one came out of, of whatever it is they're rebooting. But for that movie going sweet spot, which for studios traditionally has been basically the 19 to 24 year old male. Maybe that's spread out now to maybe the 16 or 17 year old to 24 year old male. Those guys haven't seen the movies because they were children when they came out. But for us, it just feels like Groundhog's Day, right? Yeah, you know, they're rebooting all the stuff that we've seen. And, you know, we catch feelings over it half the time. One, because they mess up the story in some fashion or they re-engineer a character that we remember from our childhood. Yeah, yeah. So we, we have different experience, but that's the benefit that these mega studios have is that, you know, after 10, 20, probably like like 20 years. Yeah. They can reintroduce this stuff and these kids have no clue. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I, it's a problem we talked about, I think a month ago, a problem that we talked about maybe three episodes ago about how the rapidly expanding budgets of, uh, tentpole movies, and studio movies in general, uh, it wasn't sustainable. Uh, a movie can't keep, you can't keep this up. You can't, you can't have a movie that costs, you know, nearly, you know, a hundred million dollars, $200 million to make. And, um, it, it sort of prices out what's possible in an original movie anyway. Um, so, for example, Avengers, which, you know, how much of that movie do you think was real? Like maybe 50 percent less? Probably less. Yeah. So CGI. That movie has grossed nearly three billion dollars. So these are the kind of profits they're chasing and making. And therefore, the only reasonable bet is to make another movie like that. So, you know, I would ask you, I'd ask you the question, Nick, what do you think is, is for a theatrical run, does it make any sense if the, if the, if the goal is profit to ever make, you know, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood is the, is the movie that's, that's showing up right now and saying, okay, that was a movie that made a ton of money as an, as an original and might be nominated for movie of the year. 
But there's also the the Tarantino and Brad Pitt and Leo, you know, where they're that's such an outrageous cast. You know what I mean? So so what what are your thoughts? Well, I think if you're talking about relative probability uh, profitability, then I would say, yeah, you, it's very hard to compete with original content. And what I mean is by relative is that if you're trying to compete with three billion dollars, then, you know, you need to go with some recognizable, powerful uh, IP. I think right. that's basically the equation. Right. So now you go to the Tarantino stuff. That's an equation that's been around for a very long time that has proven profitability, which is the stars in their own right are IP. You know, they are product that people want to see. So uh, the, the hard part for me is like, if that's always been the model for original content, then what are we, what's happening? Are we, are people in Hollywood scared to do that? Like, are we not teaming up anymore? Like you think about films like Italian Job or Ocean's, you know, 11, you know, at the time that was, you know, you could say Italian Job was a remake of a film way back when. So that might, but but it's not a franchise. So it was Ocean's 11. <clears throat> right. But it wasn't a franchise when it first right. came out. Right. So what I'm saying is that they're ensemble films. Right. So it's something that we know you bring these characters together and you can have a successful original film. So that's the part that kind of gets me. It's like, it's like we're looking at these $3 billion films and saying that that is now the gold standard. And I don't think so. I think they're actually the outliers. So why don't we just go back to the actual gold standard, which is having a good ensemble cast. And that's, you know, those rom-coms back in the day in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, or the early mid nineties to two thousands, they, they did great. And I think they can still do great. Um, and I think that's, that's the gold standard. So yeah, this, this and to me, rom- it's kind of rom-com like, just doesn't even, that, that doesn't exist in theaters. Like when's the last time you've seen a big push marketing and branding wise for a comedy or a rom? Yeah, I just I haven't. And that's the that's the part that I don't understand. Like that's the part that kind of gets me. It's like are they just are they saying if we can't make three billion dollars, then it's not worth it? Right? Is is it always about relative profitability? Can't you just be profitable? You know, can't you make a couple hundred million? That's not okay anymore. You know, like that's not enough to line everybody's pockets. Cause in, in Hollywood, everybody gets paid up front anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's not like they're going to lose money on the deal. That actor, well, that star actor is going to get twenty five million paid out. Well, in the case that they can sell the movie for more than it costs. So a lot of times that isn't the case uh, when the budgets are too high. Again, pricing yourself out. Like the idea that like Gemini Man, for example, with Will Smith is considered underwhelming, both critically and financially. It's made one hundred and fifty million dollars. Right. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a movie relative. that made $150 million. Yeah. So, so there's something that's not right. Like the, the dog doesn't hunt. Well, I think they're playing games with us. That's my point, right? I think there's a game that we don't understand that's happening where I don't, I don't know if they're trying to push people out of the market or trying to scare people. Um, 
you know, it's almost like a like a false like it's a rumor, like it's a false rumor that you can't compete in the theatrical space anymore. You know, and maybe that's something that's being pushed by the streaming companies. Like that's, you know, some fake news that they've literally put out there in, in these articles saying that this can't compete, this can't happen, or you know, it, you you can't really make your money if you're not making three billion. It just like you said, the dog don't hunt. So I think if Hollywood, let's just talk about that since we're talking about these big studio films. If Hollywood were to just make some quality ensemble films, they could be rom coms. Then people would go see them, right? Because that's really what I mean. If I'm walking, because you mentioned the 19 to 24 year old male, I mean, let's talk about the female market. You know, if I'm walking through the theater with my wife, and we're looking at the movies that are either coming out or the movies that are in the theater, and we're looking at those, you know, those posters on the wall. If she sees a name and a face that she recognizes, she's automatically interested in what that movie's about, and if it fits within her wheelhouse, which is rom-com, which is drama, you know, which is comedy. If it fits in that space, she's going to want to see it. Right. Right. So I, I don't, I don't believe any of this stuff about can be successful in the theatrical space. And yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a farce. Yeah. The power of recognition really, when you break it down, what it is, is a viewer that says, Hey, this particular artist actor, whomever, director, didn't let me down the first time I saw something. That's right. He has a trust thing. And and that's, you're right. And that's how recognition starts. Um, Something we might go into a little bit, this whole episode, by the way, is going to be about profit. And um, something we might go into in in our second topic today, just about how you actually become a recognizable entity that's bankable in that process. but, but a couple of weeks ago, um, I interviewed Joey Von Hager, the director, the, the king of shorts, uh, short films. And he had, has this funny line that Star Trek is for adults and I'm an adult, which intimates that Star Wars is for children, for kids. You know, man, man child people that will play with action. Whereas Star Trek is about, you know, William Shatner uh, having sex with aliens all across the galaxy. Yeah, which is, pretty much. Which, which I align with that. Like, I'm more on the Shatner side. Like, I would, I think I align better. And I think maybe that's why I've never been, like, 100% in the Star Wars camp like a lot of our friends are. Not that I dislike it. I think what George Lucas did was brilliant. And I do like the movies. But... Yeah, Star Trek's is a different thing. And the reason I bring that up is because the thing I hate about the comic book movie and Marvel Comic Universe and uh, DC and you know the whole ilk, the whole style, even down to like the, the Joker that came out this year, there has been this push towards glamorizing the nihilism. And I think that's been a negative thing. And there's not a lot of original content to push against that to sort of show, okay, there's another way to live. There are, you can actually like a character that cares about something. And if you look at the trend in all these comic book movies, you're dealing with someone who 
you know, has a nihilistic point of view or, uh, or an extreme, what I would call an extreme collectivist point of view. Think about Thanos. Um, and I don't know if that's good because you don't want to normalize nihilism. I don't, and, and we, and not only do we normalize it in these films, we glamorize. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, if you're talking about, I mean, all of them, I think there's, they, they probably try to achieve some level of balance. The, the villain is always seems to be a nihilist. And then, and then he or she is made to be n- not only formidable, but they create storylines that make you empathize. And I think that all art is extremely powerful. And when art is great, it makes you feel something. And when you feel something, it indelibly changes you. So because all these movies are so well made and there's so much movie uh, money behind them, and there's so many uh, great actors in these films, great directors attached to producers, that it's going to have an impact. And I don't know if it's really good for society as a whole, especially when there's no counterbalance to it. Well, I think that, you know, if you're seeing that in the villains and the counterbalance is supposed to be the good guys and even the good guys have their own, you know, battles that they're dealing with. And I think, you know, what I've seen from those films is that they're, they basically they're, they're humanizing both the villain as well as the hero Right. And and kind of presenting to us, not, not glamorizing nihilism, you know, but basically it's they're just saying, hey, look, it's these are these are human or these are people. Right. Let's just say put it that way, because some of these villains are not necessarily human. But these are these are people who have either unconventional views on the world or they're just struggling to find their purpose or their place in it. Mm. You know, so like you have a lot of balancing act that goes between, you know, a Captain America and an Iron Man. You know, what what is the answer? And I think the answer is that that they're trying to show you is that there is no answer. Because even with the Thanos thing, you know, I don't think they're glamorizing it or glorifying it. But when you look at, you know, what he's trying to accomplish, you know, he's not that he has no sense of values or anything like that. Like this guy actually believes that there's a better universe on the other end of what he's trying to do. Right. He believes that it's overpopulated. Right. He's not a nihilist. He's an, I would call that extreme collective. Yeah. He's just saying, I need, you know, this, the universe would be a better place if it had fewer people because we're over, it's oversaturated. And what's going to happen is that people will rebuild. Yeah, he and only studied Marx and Engels in college. Yeah, right. And like everything will be fine, right? So I think that's the thing with those with those films. But um, but you my, know, so point, I don't my point about the comparison though between Star Trek and Star Wars, which was really more like Star Trek and the you know the Marvel and DC films and the contemporary films like Joker that we have now, is simply that Captain Kirk has purpose, <laughs> and and has. Uh, and and then I think the bad guys are just bad guys, right? And then today I think what's in style is the anti-hero. Well, you mean just simpler? It was simpler, like yeah, yeah. It was simpler to me. That's what that was. It was it was simpler, but but even you know even uh, Darth Vader isn't 
like these bad guys now, these villains now. These villains are anti-hero. So we so now we go in and we actually root for mayhem. Uh, maybe maybe even in Unbreakable or that whole series, you know, the Glass series. Um, you know, there there are people that will go in and root for Samuel. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I get it. I mean, this is, again, you can root for Thanos because of what it is he's trying to accomplish. You know, if you believe in, in his way of affecting the universe, then, yeah. And it's the same thing with um, oh, we talked about this one before with Black Panther. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at the end of that movie. Killmonger, yeah. Yeah. Like, who are you who are you supposed to root for? Right. So I get it. It's, it's and not, I guess it's what I'm saying in, 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 in this time, this is a very fragile time. Like the next ten years, uh, globally is critical, I think, and you already have a large populace of people on edge, feeling very hopeless and powerless, and the content that we feed them and market to them, with the most dollars behind it, are anti-hero stories over and over, even on TVs. You know, Walter White. Uh, it's blurred lines, basically. Yeah. Like. It's basically it's, it's it's anti what we were brought up on, which is clear lines of distinction between good and evil. Yeah, exactly. Mad Madman would be an example of that with uh, uh, John Hamm. So I, I just yeah, it's I just it's not that you don't need it. Uh, it's it's just that um, where's the where's the counter? Where's the where's the balance? Um, in the box office. And a lot of times that stuff is going to come from not IP, but original content. But, but the scary thing I think is that if you're Quentin Tarantino, you know, you're going to bring the audience because you sit out front you've, you've kind of created this brand where it's like, I'm going to do 10 movies. And so now every one of his movies is appointment viewing. Right. Even if you don't like Tarantino, just the fact that, you know, there's a finite number of it raises the stakes. And, and that's why you're seeing other movies that are original not do as well as like I say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it and it deepens the point that IP is the way to go. Versus and, and this has a very chilling effect down the line, Nick. And that's why I think it's an important topic. It is it is really this shit really rolls downhill. Because every person that's writing a spec script and uploading it to the blacklist. Every person that walks into a pitch meeting with the original content, they really have a very narrow chance now, more narrow. When I started writing, a spec script was a real thing. It was a real thing. And it is not a real thing. And the only way you get these kind of things written is to go the what you would call the pseudo-indie route, Right. Yeah, um, where you're going through A24 or Netflix, and Netflix is releasing, you know, over 55 movies uh, just in this year, next year alone. Uh, so, so that's a great avenue, I think. You know, go to if you're an independent filmmaker, independent writer, go to Netflix, make your movie through Netflix. They don't have to count the dollars the same way. Yeah, but I think what you're really saying is go to the production companies that have relationships with Netflix. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. that's what it yeah. comes yeah. down well, to. Well, well, Netflix is making their own movies. They have their own studio. Um, so that 
you know, maybe, maybe you could go to Tyler Perry. I don't know. Go to his studios down in Atlanta that are brand new. And maybe, maybe he'll make your movie off spec, just an original, original film. I don't know. It just feels like, it feels like it's a bigger gamble to do, no matter who you are. But with Netflix, they don't have to count the dollars just because they're really looking at it. Subscriber, you know, subscriber numbers. And the films will have lower budgets. And that fits a lot more into the world of, um, uh, you know, indie scripts, right? Not a lot of CGI, not a lot of visual and special effects that are going to jump the budget up. You might be able to have one or two uh, names in it, right? But, but I don't think... I think there's becoming a big gap where, where there's the almost like the same gap we have in like the the income gap now, where, where you have the one percent, you have uh, no middle class, like what you see when you go to a, a third world country, an island, right? Like it feels like there's that gap happening and widening all the time. Well, I think that's probably happening. Well, we, we know it's happening um, because of the franchise stuff. It's kind of taking over. Uh, and there are relationships, you know, with that the studios have with theaters and all these marketing avenues to kind of pump that stuff in your face. So you're seeing it all the time. Um, so there's definitely a shift there. But the other shift that's happening is that, you know, more and more content is being streamed mm-hmm. and more and more people are more inclined to watch via streaming. I mean, I'm there, you know, I'm not a hundred percent there because of certain things we want to see in the theater, but there's some things where, you know, you've got a large enough TV, you have a nice enough sound system attached to that sucker, man, you got food, drinks and bathrooms and a pause button. Yep. Right. Like I got that and I don't have to go pay 10 times as much as I'd be willing to pay for the movie, pay for food, park, deal with parking. Like, that's that's where we're at now. So I think that even though theatrical, there's this big divide, that's okay because streaming is here. And I think that's where a lot of the independent, the truly independent, you know, I'd call it sub $1 million, probably even sub seven fifty. Um, that's where they need to live. That's where they really need to focus is that, you know, they're not going to get the theatrical deal. And they don't need to be focusing on a theatrical deal. They need to find out what's the best streaming opportunity for their film. Exactly. Yeah, there's so much to dig into with what you do. So, so much. Because it does, it, it makes the mind spin spin a little. Because within the next year, you're going to have Disney+. Plus. You've got Apple TV+. Plus. You've got Warner Brothers+. Universal, they're all going to have their own streaming networks, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, it makes you wonder what will HBO and Showtime do? Like, why couldn't HBO just have a day and date and Showtime the same way? And, and, and stars and everything else. Like, why couldn't they just have a, their own day and date? Right? Like, they produce their own movie. It's supposed to, it would be a movie that's theatrical level. They run it directly through their streaming platform and they release it in a theater for a short run at the same time. And the whole nature of HBO has changed because 
HBO was a place where you went to license a movie after its theatrical, or even after its SVOD run, potentially, right? And VOD run. But, but now HBO could just get right into the game immediately. So I just think the whole landscape is going to change. And I think if you want to know my opinion, um, you asked the question earlier, sort of rhetorically, like what is the secret? What is the thing we don't know that's kind of driving all this? To me, what's driving it all is that the market share is rapidly dwindling for the in-theater experience and that the in-theater experience is becoming a, an event space, right? Oh, for sure, for sure it is. And that's because they're trying to keep up with the fact that streaming is taking people away from the theater. But, but how, they're doing, how they're doing it is, is, they're, is they're pricing in the externality, right? This concept, do you know, the, do you, have you ever heard of the concept of uh, product externalities? I mean, basically things that are, don't pertain to your product, but can be associated with like the fact that I can get a meal now and I can get alcohol now when watching my movies at my local theater. Well, no, kind of like <laughs> close. It would be, let's use that. Let's use the food analogy. Uh, it would be like if your product were a cheeseburger, but some of the cost externalities of it were that people got heart disease. Right. And so there's a cost to directly related to your product that isn't built into your product. Right. Heart disease isn't built into your McDonald's cheeseburger. Otherwise, it'd be, you know, one hundred dollars a burger. Right. <laughs> At least. Yeah. A lot of times you can fix you can fix your profit problem by pricing in your externality. So that's what I see happening in the movie theater business. Right. They're saying, OK, our market is thinner. Let's raise the price and raise the stakes on every movie. Therefore, when you go to the movies, you see an Avengers Endgame type event on screen and nothing less than that. You get an IMAX experience that blows your fucking head off. Uh, and not only that, we're going to give you basically a lazy boy recliner to sit in and we're going to put a tray over you uh, and, then, and then not just give you food, but we're going to give you gourmet food and alcohol to consume. And now instead of coming to the movies and getting out of there for, let's say, 30 bucks with drink, popcorn and tickets. Now you're spending over one hundred dollars per movie ticket. When you like you when you go to the movies now, it's an event. It's like going to see a play. Right. So that's how. Plays and theaters stay open as their ticket prices are priced in for all the externalities that goes into that price. And therefore, they can put on 12 shows a year and keep the doors open. Yeah, but I think that that's not that's a losing game for me because that's that's date night game. Right. Mm -hmm. And that date night game is only good for so many people. And I think there's I think you probably you hit it on the nail on the head with, let's say, 16 to 24. And. That's good for first date. After that, they got a term for it, man. It's called Netflix and chill. <laughs> but it, but Netflix and chill doesn't work for in game. I love that. It's true. It's true. But 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 Nick, let let me wrestle you a little bit on this because I you know I'm going to push back on that. That's true for ninety percent of the movies, but yeah. not not the tentpole movies. Not the right. Movies but I'm going to keep that the industry one. up. I know what right. I'm saying. Like, we'll see and, and that. So, and, so, and so is everybody else. And that's why yeah. Ventures has made $3 billion. Right. So, so that's where that they're going. Woman. They yeah. made $3 and billion. Dollars, but, but remember the other half of the movie business. 
who has the other half of the power? If not, maybe 51% of the power. The big box, the big box theaters. They own the industry, right? Like, like the studios, you know, the, this streaming thing is a massive threat to the theaters, which is why they've changed. Yeah, because they don't sure. want the power dynamic to change. The power dynamic has always been the theater, not the studio. And most consumers don't know that. They don't know. They think the studio has all the power. They don't. They pay all the money. The theater has all the power. And their profit margins are massive. Why? Because of the food, drink, and experience. And so they're doubling down on the experience and saying, hey, we're going to get less people through the door, but we don't even want to distribute your fucking original movie. Like, don't send us... Oh, right, because they're not they're not coming to the door for that. Exactly. Like don't said, send us more of the roses. Experience. Yeah, right. Send us Avengers so that this movie experience in both sound and visual matches the experience we've created in the theater. Right. Oh, I, I definitely agree. And to me, that's what's happening. That's why we're never going to get out of this until the theaters absolutely crumble. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I was saying it. I don't think it's going to survive much longer because I mean, I can still look back when I bought a, I don't know, a 36 inch television and cost like $800. You know, now you can buy us an 80 inch TV for nearly the same price. Right. Like people are just getting, I mean, I can get that whole experience at home, you know, and that's, that's changing like startlingly. So, I mean, it is, you know, the sound, the visuals, all the stuff you're able to get with your at-home technologies are just going to make it harder and harder for the theaters, regardless of the type of film that they've got out there. But I will say that whether it's theatrical or otherwise, you know, these ensemble films outside of the big tent pole still have a, a huge opportunity to sell and to be profitable, whether in the theater, like I said, whether in the theater or not. So like, Make them. I think that's that's what I'm saying to the industry. Like, make these movies. Like, we want to see them. I mean, honestly, and I don't then, know how then, many movies then, have come then put out that on, I can watch with my wife. Like, that's right. what I want. Right. And then, <laughs> put them, and then put them on the streaming services. And, and you know, the, the big deal for filmmakers, I think, is to have to flatten their ego a little bit. Because when you're a filmmaker coming up, the, the one thing you want to do is see your movie in a in a in a large theater. That's part of the appeal of it. That's the. I made it part of it uh, versus being thrown in a streaming service where the algorithm suggests things that are like things they've already watched. And so it's this very sort of anticlimactic feeling as a filmmaker, like, huh, okay, my movie's up there. I have no Netflix releases, no data and neither do any of the other streamers. They always take the shit for, it, but nobody else releases them either. And it's like, I don't know if my movie's popular or not. The only way I'll know is if, some journalist writes a story about it or I get reviewed, you know, and then you have to pay for reviews and the whole review system is kind of uh, fenced off and redlined. So I, I think I'll push back on you on this because I think that the theaters understand that there is a, and you might be different, but I think for most people, if you tell your wife, Hey, we're staying in again on Friday and we're going to watch it because we have a great theater here and we're just going to watch it here. They're like, fuck you, man. Take me out. Man, I'll take you out. out. I'll take you out, but we ain't going to a movie. Right. You know that's, like, but that's just you. That's, I'm saying that my pushback is that's oh, just you. 
I because there's, because there's a reason Ruth yeah. Chris is still open. It's not because people and, like eighty dollars steaks. It's because women want your your significant other wants to feel appreciated and wants a special night out. And that happens enough times to keep a lot of places that are that are high in tickets open. Well, I think the main thing is the um, the tent pole. That that's what it is for me. Like if you're taking your significant other out, it won't be just to see a movie. It is to your point. You're going to the experience that you can only have in the theater. Yeah. Right. Like that. Exactly. That's it. I mean, it's like it's like when Blu-rays came out, and we still had the. Um, fried green tomatoes dvd mm-hmm. right well that blu-ray is going to be you know much clearer much more crisp than that dvd it's fried green tomatoes man i'm gonna watch <laughs> that sucker on dvd you know what i'm saying like i don't need to see it in blu-ray hd quality and surround sound man i watch that sucker on vhs if i could you know <laughs> like it's not that so that I, i'm with you there there's i think that's why the studios and the theaters are basically married to one another because if they don't continue with the tent pole, huge mega experience movies, then you're not going to get people coming to the theater. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we promised a, a, a second topic of a part two of this, but I think, but I think what we should do, Nick, because this topic was so big, we should see what kind of feedback we get on this topic alone, because I think it's important. I think it's big. I think what we'll do is we'll split this up and we'll we'll do an extra like a bonus indie talk um, soon. Does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds great, man. I just want to make sure that I, I, I get it clear for the for the audience, for the listeners and that this is this is what you are saying. Okay, I just want to do a quick summary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris is saying that Star Wars is stupid and Star <laughs> Trek is much better. So if anybody out there has any comments about that, I think you should really send them our way because I totally disagree with Chris on this. I'm going to push back. Okay, I'm going to push back on you, Chris. All right, just a little bit. All right, uh, and I think you're I think you're a little off base there, man. And I think there might be a community of people who agrees with me. So yeah, let's let's feel that out. I would be happy to own that, but I, again, <laughs> I, again, I have to, I have to, I have to digress, and I have to, I have to say that this was Joey Von Hager. So send all your comments to Joey Von Hager, <laughs> Joey Bags, and uh, you can find him on Instagram. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him on Facebook at Joey on the Internet. <laughs> He can find him at his house. He can find him at his house, and he will he will uh, gladly take your comments on that. For me, I was just I was just Nick. I was just quoting another man. I, I'm actually I'm actually I'm actually like um, I like the Star Wars movies just as much, if not more. And I'm and I'm not really into either of the old content. Like I watched the first Star Wars, and it almost looks silly. And then all the Star Treks are hilariously like outdated at this point. So, uh, but I do want to I do want to announce like our topic. So, so when we come back with the second round of this, we want to talk about we want to focus now with you know as a segue from this conversation into that next one. We want to focus now on the indie filmmaker and what is that pathway to profit. From yeah, man. This, that's from it. the moment you sort of start your film 
uh, to post to going through distribution and working with your distributor, what is that pr- path to profitability? And so uh, looking forward to that conversation with you, Nick, uh, on the next one of these, and we'll, we'll uh, make sure it happens. For sure, man. Very I look soon. forward to it. Yep, I look forward to it for sure. And as always, man, this is a great convo, dude. Appreciate you. Um, I love doing it. Me too. I enjoy it. It's, uh, it's definitely a passion of me and you. I'm glad that those out there that listen to us uh, share that passion. So, again, if you have questions, you know where you can uh, send those. That is contact at bonsai.film. That's right, dot .film, not dot .com. So, B-O-N dot L-M for any questions. And, of course, if you want to reach out to us directly, visit us at our website at bonsai.film. So, www.bonsai film and we'll be happy to get to you right away and then on social uh we are underscore bonsai creative uh, across the board one day we'll tell the story of why we are underscore bonsai creative instead of bonsai uh it is a fun little story but you can find us there on instagram and on twitter and then on facebook you can just search for bonsai creative and pop right up so nick have a wonderful night and i will talk to you soon yeah, man. You too. Uh, finish off that glass of wine and I will uh, finish off one more cup of tea. That wine's been gone, homie. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. You make me proud. All right. Talk to you soon. All right, man. Take it easy. Peace. All right. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.